Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Brian Geisler. Uh, I've been a member here pretty much since the beginning. Uh, my wife and I met at the first info meeting. Uh, we were the first meet to marry couple here. Um, so it's been a fun journey. Um, in Andrew's absence, I'm uh, taking a spot at the pulpit here today. Um, and so I'd like to start off in prayer. Uh, God, I, I second Joe's prayers for the Pack family. I pray for Thaddeus that you'd heal his body. Lord, you know what he needs. You're almighty God. I pray you'd heal him. I pray for uh, the family, that you'd comfort them as you have already, um, and as you promise you will. I pray for our time here in your word, that you would speak, that you would reveal Christ to us in a clear way, and uh, maybe even a new way, that we would worship him uh, more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 33, in the text that Joe just read earlier. Um, Jeremiah 33, verse 14 is where we'll start. And if you're not sure what that is, Jeremiah is pretty much right smack in the middle of your Bible. So just open it to the middle. If you don't see it, you can move to the right a little bit. It'll be there. Um, so you might be wondering why we're in Jeremiah 33 this Sunday. Um, I was talking with Joe last week about what to preach on, and we decided we'd just go ahead and start Advent a week early. Um, so this section here in Jeremiah is it's a promise about this coming Messiah. And so I figured we would spend an extra week in Advent and spend this time digging into what this promise is. And this promise is, uh, might be unfamiliar to you, there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies that get uh, preached on a lot during Advent, um, Isaiah 9 and other places, but this one is it's, uh, one that we don't hit on much, so I hope we can dig into it. I hope we can see Christ in a new way, in a, new, in a profound way through it. And I also hope through it that we can see just how sure and how solid God's promises are. So I'm going to read the text again, and uh, then we'll dig in. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now before I dig into uh, the specifics of this text, uh, one thing that's important about reading prophetic texts like this is that uh, they can be kind of confusing if you don't understand the context in which they're being spoken. Um, 
If you're not familiar with this book, uh, Jeremiah is a prophet, which means he's a messenger sent from God to speak to God's people, to speak God's words to God's people in a specific time, specific place, about specific events. And so to understand this text fully, we need to know what the time is, what the place is that he's speaking this. And the cool thing is that you don't have to be a scholar to figure this out. It's actually right here in your Bible. And the helpful thing about Jeremiah is that it's actually his prophecies over the course of 40 years. And one helpful thing about it is that it's divided up into sections, where each section has a heading where he says, this is the time and place in which this word came. And so for chapter 33, if you go back a chapter to 32, at the beginning, uh, verse 1, it says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, and then he gives us the time that it happened, in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. So he says here, the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. He's, he's placing this word in the tenth year of this king's reign. Now, anytime a prophet mentions a king and the year of the king's rule, it now means that you can place this word in a specific time and in a specific place. And another cool thing about the Old Testament is that these kings are actually, the history of them is recorded in other places in the Old Testament. So if you don't know, the Old Testament actually has the history of God's people all the way from the beginning of the world in Genesis up to the mid to late 500s B.C., and in some of the books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, they uh, have the history of the kingdom of Israel, where it's the time of the kings. And at that time, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah. And we find this king, Zedekiah, near the end of Second Kings, which is around chapter 25 is where we'll, we'll have this word here. And if you read around that time, this is a horrible time for God's people. At this point, that northern kingdom I talked about, the kingdom of Israel, uh, it's been destroyed since for about 130 years. Back in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came, destroyed the kingdom of Israel, and took God's people captive. And this passage here, or the passage in 2 Kings 25, it actually outlines the last days of the southern kingdom, Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, this is the king of Babylon. You might have heard of him in, in your history books. Um, he's coming to destroy Judah, and he's coming to destroy God's city, Jerusalem. And he's going to take the rest of God's people captive. And another thing you need to know about this time is that God's people were living under what we call the Old Covenant. Um, they wouldn't have called it the Old Covenant. It was just the covenant they had with God, or maybe the Mosaic Covenant. Um, but back after God freed God's pe his people from Egypt, Moses led them through the wilderness towards the Promised Land. Joshua brought them into the Promised Land. But Moses brought them the law, and with it came a covenant. And the covenant went like this. Uh, God said, if you worship me alone, if you walk in my ways, you walk in my statutes, this law I'm giving you, I will bless you. It will prosper you, your kingdom will be great, you'll have great abundance, and all the nations will come and see how good I am. But he also said, if you worship false gods, if you turn from me, if you don't walk in my rules, my statutes, my laws, I will curse you, that foreign kings will come to rule over you, your land will not produce, and enemies will conquer you. 
So in this time, we've already seen God execute this curse, this judgment on the northern kingdom, Israel, through Assyria conquering them. And we're seeing him doing this now in, with the kingdom of Judah. Because the reality is that God's people have been rebelling against him for centuries and centuries and centuries. If you read through First and Second Kings, you'll see this refrain with the kings, with a few exceptions. It'll say, such and such king ruled over the kingdom of Israel, and he did evil inside of the Lord. Or such and such king ruled over the kingdom of Judah, he did evil inside of the Lord. And this happens over and over and over again. And at this point, God's patience had run out. So here in Jeremiah, he's sent, God has sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Judah and destroy Jerusalem. And if we go back to Jeremiah 32, 1 to 2, we see this. So the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which is the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, the prophet, was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar had come. He had taken the existing king of Judah. His name was Jehoiakim. He took his family, took other people in the, in the area. He took them captive. He propped up Jehoiakim's uncle, named him Zedekiah, put him there. And now he's laying siege to Jerusalem. And siege is, is horrible. Uh, the, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar have surrounded Jerusalem. They cut off all supplies. And everyone in the city basically starves to death. The siege lasted over two years until the 11th year of Jedekiah. So we're here in the 10th year, which means we're right in the middle of this siege. So God's executing this massive judgment on his people. People are getting taken captive. They're getting murdered. Jerusalem is starving. And Jeremiah himself, we saw, is in prison for delivering God's message. He was telling Zedekiah, it's not going to go well for you. And Zedekiah didn't like that, so he put him in prison. So that's the context for our passage here in 33. It's a horrible time for God's people. Now, I wanted you to see all this background, uh, just so that you can see that this passage we're going to be in is a promise. And that even in the midst of God's judgment against his kingdoms that, that is horrific and supposed to be horrific, that he still gives them something to hang on to. He's still promising them that ultimately he won't abandon them. He's going to continue to show mercy. He will continue to give grace to them. He will continue to be their God. He mentions so often in the Old Testament that he's, he's slow to anger. He's merciful and gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love. And we see that here in this promise that he's giving us. So now let's dig into what is the promise. Uh, we're going to figure out what the promise is and, and the different things that are going to happen at the time of this promise. And then we're going to spend some time talking about how these promises were fulfilled or will be fulfilled. So we'll start in verse 14, Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So God's referencing this promise he's made to Israel and Judah. So that's the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, that's basically all of God's people. Now what is this promise? Um, if you read Jeremiah, and you should, it's full of promises from God. Um, that 
to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And I think a good summary of this promise is actually just a few verses up in chapter 33, starting at verse 7, where he says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. So God is going to restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah. He's going to cleanse them of their sins, cleanse them of their guilt. Though he's judging them now, he will forgive them. And Jerusalem will once more be a place where people see the goodness of the Lord. And he's made this promise in various points in different forms throughout Jeremiah. And here, going back to 14, he's going to say that, that days are coming when I will fulfill this promise. And then he's going to follow with what's going to happen in those days. So we'll go to 15 now. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So the, the first thing, the first promise that's going to happen in those days is that there's going to be this righteous branch of David. Now, if you don't know, a David is a big deal in the Old Testament. David was Israel's greatest king. His heart was after the Lord, even though he had his own sin and shortcomings. He was repentant. He sought after God. Uh, his kingdom prospered. And all the kings of Judah descended from David. And God is promising that in those days, when he fulfills his promises to Israel and, and Judah, that there's going to be this branch of David, this descendant of David who's going to come. And this branch, he calls it the righteous branch, that he's going to be after God's heart. He's not going to be evil like the kings before. He's going to be righteous. He's going to be faithful to God. He's going to be obedient to God. So that's the first thing, the righteous branch of David. And we see a second thing here, that he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. The previous kings have failed. They've executed injustice. They've oppressed the poor. They've oppressed the afflicted. They've picked favorites. They've shown partiality. They've executed unrighteousness. They worship false gods. They lead God's people astray. They prop up places to worship these false gods. They execute immorality, greed, murder, you name it. Read the kings. It's, it's a wild ride. But he says this branch is going to execute justice and righteousness, not injustice and unrighteousness. Now, there's another passage that expands on this, what this justice and righteousness will look like. Uh, it's in another prophet, Isaiah, who, who prophesied about 150 years before this. And this is in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. So keep that in mind that he will execute justice and righteousness in the land and listen to this. And I know most of you know who this branch is. So as you hear this, just I pray that you would just worship. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now listen for justice here. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So we see this picture of his, this branch's justice and righteousness. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he will judge the poor. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. So that's the second promise. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Uh, the third, moving on to verse 16, is that in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will, be, uh, will dwell securely. So verse 16, in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So Judah is going to be saved. There's going to be no more captivity, no more judgment, but salvation. And Jerusalem is going to dwell securely. It'll be safe. No more siege, no more armies, no more enemies, but safety. And the, the last part here is remarkable. This is actually our fourth promise. And, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That Jeru- he's referring to Jerusalem here. And he's saying that, that this place where God's people dwell, it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. That righteousness won't come from works of obedience or adherence to the law, but God himself will be their righteousness. And that the place of God where God's people dwell will be so marked by this that it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Now, this phrase also appears earlier in Jeremiah. I want to go there, too. Uh, Jeremiah 23. There's another promise about this branch that sounds very similar to this. In this, we're going to pick up our fifth promise. Hope you're not overwhelmed by all the promises. (laughs) Okay, 23, verses 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. We see that again. Now listen to this. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So the branch will have the same name, the Lord is our righteousness. That's our fifth promise. So the place is going to be called the Lord is, our, Lord is Our Righteousness, and the branch is going to be called the Lord is Our Righteousness. So let's recap what we've seen so far. Number one, there's going to be this righteous branch of David who comes. Number two, he's going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. Three, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will be safe. Four, the branch will be called the Lord is Our Righteousness. That's from Jeremiah 23. And five, Jerusalem will be called the Lord is Our Righteousness. Now, I'm recapping these because, like I said, we're going to be revisiting these later. Uh, But there's two more promises that God lays out here. So, verse 17. 
Uh, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So David, like we said, the kingly line goes through, is our descendant from David, and he's promising that there will never lack a king of his line. There will always be a king from David's line ruling over Israel. Think about how nearly impossible it would be to believe that in this time. That Jehoiakim just got shipped off to Babylon. Zedekiah got propped up. He's about to be done. That it looks like David's kingly line is about to end. But God is still promising that it's, that it's going to continue. And this is actually not a new promise. This comes back from when David himself was king. If you look at 2 Samuel 7... Verses 11 to 16. I'll pick out pieces from this. This is Nathan the prophet. This is what God told Nathan to tell David. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. This is his son, Solomon. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, that's the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David, you're going to have a son, Solomon. His kingdom's going to be forever, therefore your kingdom's going to be forever. And jumping down to 16, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's our sixth promise here. God is reiterating it again that I haven't forgotten what I promised to David, that this throne will continue on forever, that there will be a king sitting on this throne forever. Okay, and our last one, the seventh one, verse 18. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So some background here. As part of God's covenant with his people, there were a group of people who were responsible for uh, the worship duties of God's temple. These were the Levitical priests. Um, People would bring their offerings to the temple. The priests would burn them. The priests would make the sacrifices. And so these Levitical priests are the ones who mediated between God's people and God. They stood between the people and God, and they would handle the offerings, the sacrifices, and all the, the ceremonies surrounding the temple. And at this time in Israel, uh, God's people are not worshiping in this way. The priests have all gone astray. The people have gone astray. The kings have gone astray. And so God's promising that one day people are going to worship me rightly again. There's going to be people in the temple worshiping me again. So again, think about how nearly impossible that would be to believe. That Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem. He's about to destroy it. He's going to destroy the temple in the process, which means he's going to destroy the the priesthood in the process. But yet God's still promising that forever I'm going to have these priests ministering to me. So, seven promises. Actually, hold on. So these things might be impossible to believe about the the king and who's going to rule forever and the priests are going to rule forever. 
And if you have any doubts, listen to what God says in the next few verses. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So God's using this rhetorical device here. He's saying that uh, if you can stop my covenant with the day and the night, I'll break my covenant with David, sure. If you can stop the sun from rising in the morning, if you can stop the sun from setting, yeah, I'll break it. So it's a poetic way of God saying, you're not going to stop this. If this covenant is as good as done, that my love for these people is so strong, nothing will stop me from keeping these promises. that God's promises, they're more sure than the sun rising in the morning or setting in the evening, and that this is going to happen. He's going to send his branch. He's saying, I will send this branch. I will restore Judah and Israel. I will be their righteousness. David's line will be forever. I will always have priests ministering before me. And you won't stop me. So as an aside, God's promises, they're more secure than anything you can see or taste or touch. What are you, what are you hoping in? What do you find your security in? What, what gives you, makes you feel safe? God's promises are the things that are more sure than any of those things. So now we're going to transition. We have these, these seven promises. Um, now we're going to show how they are to be fulfilled. Because we're New Testament Christians. We're not, we're not Jews. We're New Testament Christians. This is the Old Testament pointing forward to, to what we believe as believers in Jesus. So, again, quick recap of the promises. Number one, a righteous branch of David will come. Number two, he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Number three, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will be safe. Number four, the branch will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Number five, Jerusalem will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Number six, David's line will never end. Number seven, God will always have priests ministering before him. So I'm not going to walk through these in order because some of them kind of are grouped together, but those are the seven. We're going to examine the New Testament and see how they're fulfilled. So the first one, which is the most important one, is this branch, this righteous branch of David who's going to come. And the reason I say it's the most important is because God's fulfilling of his promise to Israel and Judah depend on this branch coming. If you look back at 14 to 15, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Then he says, In those days and at that time, so the sign of these days that they're there, is that I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. So if you reverse it, if you say there, if there is no branch, there's no branch, righteous branch of David, there's no fulfillment of these promises to Israel and Judah. Now, if you know the timeline after uh, Zedekiah, the people of Judah go off into exile for a while, then they actually come back, and they rebuild God's temple after about 70 years. And you might think that this is what God's talking about, that this is where Judah is saved, um, this is where Jerusalem is now safe again, this is where the priests are doing their work again. 
But there's a key thing missing there. There's no branch. There's no king. There's no successor to David's throne yet. So, so the, their return from captivity is not the fulfillment of his promises. So you have to keep looking. So if you look forward, uh, after Israel's return, God sends a few more prophets. And then there's silence for 400 years. And through this period, there's no king. There's no branch of David. There's no prophets to deliver God's word. That this promise is left unfulfilled for over 500 years until God breaks the silence. So right around 4 to 6-ish BC, uh, there's a guy named Zechariah. We see him in Luke chapter 1. He's a Levite priest. He's ministering before the Lord in the temple, and everything changes. The angel Gabriel appears to him, and he promises him that he, his wife, who's old and barren, is going to have a son. And this one is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And shortly after this, the same angel Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary. And we'll pick that up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. This might sound familiar. I actually preached on this last year. Um, so 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, listen to this, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So right here, when he says the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, the branch has arrived. He's here. That the days where God's going to restore Israel and Judah are here. Now Zechariah knew this as he pondered these events. A little later in the chapter, he's prophesying after uh, John the Baptist is born. And it says this, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God... Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's come. The branch has come. God's going to restore us. So that's, that's where the branch, this righteous branch of David, it is Jesus Christ who came into the world through the Virgin Mary. And we see also that Jesus is also the fulfillment of this forever throne of David. Look at verse 33, back in chapter 1. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus now is, he's not just another king in David's line. He's the king. He's the forever king. He's going to reign on the throne forever, and David's line will never end. So that's the first two promises. The righteous branch is Jesus. Jesus will rule on this throne forever. So David's line will be forever. Fulfilled. So then the next one. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now when you read that at face value in Jeremiah, you, might, you would expect this regal, this 
public figure ruling on his throne, justly deciding between matters, faithfully serving God, punishing the wicked as he rules his kingdom. But then when you look at Jesus' life, you don't really see things in that way. Uh, He spends 30 years as a carpenter living a quiet life. Uh, He spends three years in ministry living, it's a public life, but it's pretty meek. He travels, he preaches, he casts out demons, he heals the sick. Um, So how does this match with he will execute justice and righteousness in the land? Um, I have three answers for that. Uh, First, Jesus did act justly and righteously while he was there. Um, He treated everybody with fairness, including the poor, the afflicted, the sinners. His life was perfect. He was perfectly righteous and obedient to God. And he even punished the wicked in a sense that he, he called out the unfaithful religious leaders of the day, how they were showing partiality, how they were hypocritical before God. He called them to repentance. So, so yes, he did execute justice and righteousness while he was here. Uh, but second, he's ruling and reigning as king right now, and he's doing it for you as his people, for us as his people, for his church. And he's also doing it through the church, that, that justice and righteousness are happening through God's people around the world. The afflicted are being taken care of. The needy are being taken care of. But most fully, I think, this is not fully fulfilled. So when Jesus came, God's kingdom arrived. But his kingdom isn't fully realized until Jesus returns. He promised he's going to come back in all of his regal, kingly glory. And as part of this kingly return, he's going to judge everybody. That includes you, includes me, includes people living in Seattle. Everyone who's ever lived, this king is going to judge. And he's going to judge with perfect fairness. It it doesn't matter if you're a destitute refugee from Syria or if you're Bill Gates. We're all going to stand before him equally. And as as it says in Isaiah, he's going to punish the wicked in, in perfect righteousness. That those murderers in in Paris, they're going to be justly punished for what they did by Jesus. That that those in ISIS who don't repent, they will be punished for what they do. That that Wall Street bankers who in their greed deceive the public and bring the economy crashing down will, will answer to him. That the, the cries of the afflicted, they never fall on deaf ears. If you have been afflicted and you've cried out and you think he was silent, he is, he is not silent. Or he's not deaf, he's not, not listening. He heard you and he's listening and Jesus is going to judge it. So he will execute justice and righteousness in the land will, will most fully come to pass when he returns, when he judges the world and he sets up his kingdom forever. Now, there's something we need to examine, is that if Jesus is going to judge all people for all time, that includes you and me. And if he's going to judge you and me based on our lives and our works, fairly and rightly and justly, where do we stand? Do we stand guilty or do we stand innocent? And... I'm not sure what your heart is telling you, but the answer is overwhelmingly guilty. 
I could point to probably hundreds of passages that demonstrate this in the Bible, but I want to point you to some words from the branch himself, Jesus, in Mark chapter 7. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So uh, this list here that he mentions, I've done those things, you've done those things, and, and he's saying that these things are not just mistakes or missteps or moments of weakness, but they come from within, from our hearts. And that these evil things that come out of us, they defile us. That we're defiled, we're profane, we're unholy, we're unjust, we're unrighteous. That we're just like those Israelites receiving God's judgment in Jerusalem. We're just like Zedekiah and the other evil kings. And we need someone else to make us right with God again. So this leads to the, the fourth promise, which is that the branch will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So Jesus, the branch of David, he didn't just come to execute justice and righteousness in the land. Uh, he came to give righteousness to sinners. So Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, perfectly faithful to God where we could not, where nobody could. And he came and he died. He died in our place on the cross for our sins, taking God's punishment for us. And he rose from the dead to prove he's God and that this sacrifice is sure to cover sin. And all who believe in Christ will be saved and that, he, and that they will be made righteous. That anyone who believes in Jesus won't receive a curse like the old people in the old covenant will. That that kind of wrath was poured out on Jesus. That anyone who believes in him won't be found guilty before him when he comes. We will be found washed clean and forgiven of our sins, as God promised in Jeremiah. In Second Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sin but became sin for us. We had no righteousness, but he gives us his righteousness. So it's an exchange, it's a free gift to anyone who believes. If you don't know him, take it. Be right before him. But, but with this, now we can say that Jesus is our righteousness. And so now we can say that this branch of David, this Jesus, we can call his name, the Lord is our righteousness, because he has given us righteousness. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to actually talk about Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. I had notes there. If you want to talk about it afterwards, um, we could talk about it. But I'm going to skip that. Um, and that's also going to include the Jerusalem is the Lord is our righteousness. So all that part I'm just going to skip. And then we'll go on to the last promise, which is that God's priests will be before him forever, offering burnt offerings, burning grain offerings, and sacrifices. So 
This is actually fulfilled, I think, in two ways. Uh, first is that Jesus fulfills this as God's forever priest. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross, he changed everything. That the, the curtain of the temple, it tore in two. The temple is no more. It got destroyed in 70. Jesus is our temple now. He's how we act as God. Uh, the Levitical priesthood is unnecessary. That Jesus is our forever priest. Joe hit on this last week in Hebrews. I'm going to read a quick passage there from Hebrews 10. 11 to 14. And every priest, these are the Levitical priests, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. So people kept bringing animals to be sacrificed to cover their sins. But he says this, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus offered himself once and for all. And this trumps all the offerings and sacrifices in the old covenant. That Jesus' blood now covers us. And he's ever present before God advocating for us as our high priest. We don't need Levitical priests anymore. And Jesus is the one who now stands in God's presence forever offering his blood for us. 1 John 2 verse 1 says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if we sin, Jesus is there to cleanse us from our sin and plead our case before God with his blood. So we talk a lot about Jesus, who's this righteous branch of David, who's our forever king, but Jesus is also our forever priest before God. So that's the first way this is fulfilled. Uh, the second way, I, I think is hinted at in the last verse of our text, which is verse 22 in Jeremiah 33. It says this, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. So here's another promise. He's saying that David's offspring will be as many as the sands of the sea, the stars in the sky. And the Levitical priests who minister to God will, be, will number as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. And I think the way this is fulfilled is that after Jesus died and rose, he promised, or before, before he died and rose, he promised that he was going to build his church. And after he died and rose... Millions upon millions of people have called on his name to be saved. And you see at the end of the story in Revelation that there are great innumerable multitudes of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, worshiping Jesus in his kingdom. And so these, these people, these descendants of David, these, descendant, these Levitical priests, are the believers in Jesus after him. And they're going to number as the sands in the sea and the stars in the sky. Now, where do I get this? I think it's most clearly uh, talked about in 1 Peter 2, 9-10, where he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that you and me here at Anchor Church are included in these, these people. 
that we are a royal priesthood, royal because now in Christ we descend from his line, which is David's line. And a priesthood because you and me in Christ are now ministers before the Lord. In the New Testament, it talks about how we no longer offer animal sacrifices to God, but we offer spiritual sacrifices to God of praise and of love and service to one another. Then we, Romans 12, we present our bodies as living sacrifices to him. We put ourselves aside, we love God, we love each other, we love the world. That this promise that the Levitical priests, that God will never have a man lacking in his presence, that we are a fulfillment of that as well. We are there ministering before him. We will live before him forever in his kingdom. This is what God saved you for. This is what he's made you for. So now to, to close, I just want you to think about this week as you're sitting at your desk at work, uh, making lunch for your kids, uh, watching the Seahawks lose today. Um, sorry, I'm kind of disgruntled about them. Um, just, just ponder these things that we've seen. One, that Jesus, he right now sits on David's throne as God's forever king, and he's executing justice and righteousness for you, through you, in the world. That Jesus is God's forever priest who's continually offering his blood on your behalf that you might call him the Lord is my righteousness. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You're cleansed from sin and forgiven forever. You're going to live with Jesus in his kingdom forever. And that place will be called the Lord is our righteousness. You're a member of God's kingdom and a priest before God to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him. And last, I hope that you've seen in all of this that God's promises are certain. Again, more sure than anything you can see or taste or touch. So rest your whole life on this, on his promises. I will pray. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that we're not left in the dark, that you've given us a way. Thank you for this righteous branch of David who executes justice and righteousness for us, who is our righteousness, Lord. May we grow as your ministers and your priests. May we grow in love and faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.